Hey, good morning, Harvest. How'd that extra hour of sleep feel last night? Good? Good. I, there's always so many more smiles this weekend, and then it's the exact opposite in the spring when we lose the hour. Like, people are throwing stuff at me while I preach. This week's way um, better. Do me a favor. If you have your uh, Bibles, can you open them up to Hebrews 5? We're going to be in Hebrews 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, um, just uh, raise your hand. We have people coming down uh, the rows. that would love to get a copy of God's Word to you. We're going to be jumping all over the place today, so you're definitely going to want a Bible if you want to kind of keep up with where we're going. And I just want to say um, from the beginning, um, I'm a little bit under the weather this weekend. I'm running a little bit of a cold. So if I sniffle a little bit, please forgive me. And um, I just want you to know I'm blaming uh, the sickness on Halloween. The fact that we were outside trick-or-treating in 35 degrees with sideways rain and northern winds. Um, When I woke up on Thursday morning, which turned on the TV and the check the weather. And the weatherman said, if you could dream up the worst possible weather to have for trick-or-treating, we have it tonight. And I uh, went to my wife, Mary, and I said, Mary, I don't think we should go trick-or-treating. I think it's a bad idea. I think we might get sick. And Mary's like, Cal, you're going to trick-or-treat and you're going to like it. And you're going to have a good attitude. <laughs> so I blame Halloween and I blame my wife. It's somewhere in between them lies the fault. But I'm um, excited to be here and uh, hopefully you're warm and ready to engage with God's word right now. Um, If you've been a part of our church for a while, I just want to warn you, this morning's going to feel a little bit different. And and you know, if you're part of our church, that what we try to do, we work really, really hard to open God's word, to to see what it says. And then it's like, all right, how do we practically align our lives to God's word? So almost every message that we give, there's kind of some takeaways. Like here's very practically what it looks like to follow God and follow his word this week or this month with what we're learning from the Bible. And one of the things I love about Hebrews is the writer of Hebrews isn't as concerned about practical application. The writer of Hebrews just wants us to see Jesus. And he's like, I want you to know how awesome Jesus is. I want you to see Jesus Christ. I want you to know your savior because if your eyes are on Jesus Christ, if your eyes are set on Jesus Christ, the other stuff has a tendency to work itself out, doesn't it? And he's like, man, I just want you to know and love and understand how amazing Jesus Christ is. And that's what this morning's message is about. We are going to look at and set our eyes on Jesus through a character study of a man who represented Jesus named Melchizedek. And here's what I would say before we jump in. Um, I've been doing ministry long enough that I can sometimes get the sense that God is just working in a unique way on a weekend. And I've already sensed it in the worship service as we've gathered together. God's doing a work in our hearts this week. And um, I'm really, really expectant that God's going to, to do some things in our lives through his word. This is a powerful passage that's worth our best attention. But before we dive into God's word, I have to ask this question. It's the big question this morning. It's this, has Jesus grown stale in your heart? And this is a question that I can't answer for us. I can't answer for you. All I can do is answer for myself. This is a question that you have to wrestle with in your heart this morning. As you come in here, can you honestly say, man, I'm on fire to worship and to meet with Jesus Christ today? Or are you in a season of your life where maybe church and religion, it's going through the motions a little bit? Maybe you're here and there's something that's gone on in your life or something that's happened in your week and you're just like, I'm here, but I'm not exactly present. I'm thinking about other things. There's other things that have my thoughts and attentions. Like, are you here believing that Jesus has the power to transform your heart right now? 
And, and I don't know where you're at, um, but what I'm going to argue with you is, man, is he powerful enough to meet you right where you're at? So even if you come in here this morning, like, you know what, I'm not in a perfect spot. Let's lean in together and, and watch what Jesus will kindly do to our hearts. Um, so here's what I want to do. I want to, before we jump into God's word, can I just pray for us? Can we just take a moment and can we meet with the Lord and ask him to, to, to just be present in this place and, and to do a work in our hearts? Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just would pray right now, there's so many people in here with so many different scenarios and circumstances in their life. And God, we have um, 40 minutes together to really engage with your word, God, and would we give our best? Uh, thank you for the extra hour of sleep. Thank you for um, us being um, alive and awake and able to gather and worship and learn from you. Thank you for that freedom. Um, God, would we take advantage of it right now? Would we not waste it? It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10. We're going to learn about this guy, Melchizedek. Follow along as I read. It says this. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for themselves, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And also he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so what the author's doing in chapter five is he's continuing this idea of what we learned last week in chapter four, that Jesus is our high priest that he is the one who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, that he is sympathetic towards us, that he knows what it's like to go through what we've gone through because he became a man. And twice in these 10 verses, the author says that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then something really strange happens in 11. In verse 11, the author gets angry. And he starts to go on a rant and he's frustrated because his readers don't understand who Melchizedek is. Look what he says at verse 11. He says, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. You see the frustration there? And then what he does is all of chapter six, which we're going to look at next week, he goes on a rant that's like, why aren't you maturing in your faith? And then in chapter seven, he goes back to talking about Melchizedek. All right, so can we have some honesty in church? Can I ask you a question? Let's be honest. Do me a favor, raise your hand if you're like, dude, I've never heard of Melchizedek. I have no idea who this guy is. All right, that's most of the room. All right, now, now let's, let's do it. Let's try this again. Raise your hand if you're like, I've heard of Melchizedek, but I'm super fuzzy on the details. Like I know the name, but not the person. Okay, so between those two groups, that's like everyone here. And so here's what I would say. If the author of Hebrews says one of the earmarks of being a mature follower of Christ is we understand who Melchizedek is and how Jesus follows after him, 
we should probably figure out who Melchizedek is, right? All right, so let's do that. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 14. We're going to meet this man, Melchizedek, Genesis 14, starting at verse 17. And I want to give you a little bit of background that will kind of frame this story. Um, This is um, in Genesis 14, God is called Abram. And and he said, listen, I'm going to make you a great nation. and, And I want you to go to the land that I promised you. So Abram gathers his family and he goes to this new land, but Abram has a screw up nephew and his name is Lot. And anyone here have a screw up nephew? No, you don't need to raise your hand. I'm just kidding. I got someone back there. Um, And Lot's kind of a screw up and they get to this new land and Lot's being disrespectful and Lot's servants are bickering with Abram's servants. So Abram's finally like, listen, um, you know what? Let's, I don't want to fight with you anymore. Let's just go our separate ways. Lot, you can choose what land you want to go to. And rather than being deferential to his uncle and respecting him, Lot chose the best land for himself and made Abram go to like this rocky, hilly country. And you guys might know that Lot settled in a town called Sodom. And right after Lot settled in Sodom, what what happens in Genesis 14 is the king of Sodom goes to war with some other kings in the area. And there's like this little skirmish and the king of Sodom loses. And in fact, Lot is taken captive by the enemies of Sodom. So, so Lot is kidnapped, he's taken captive. Abram gets word of this and Abram gets 300 of his own men and they go down and do like this night raid mission and they rescue Lot and the king of Sodom from captivity. So even though Lot's kind of a screw up, Abram's being a good, faithful uncle and kind of bailing his nephew out of trouble. And that's where the story picks up in Genesis 14, 17. Here's what it says. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the most high God. And he blessed him and said to him, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a 10th of everything. And that's all we hear about Melchizedek. That's the only time this guy shows up in Genesis and then he just vanishes. And we don't hear about him again for another thousand years until David in a prophecy about Jesus says this in Psalms 110 verse four, that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right, So all we have with this guy is, is he shows up for a moment out of nowhere, has a meal with Abram, blesses him, and then he vanishes into thin air. Um, when I was growing up, my grandma told me a story um, about how there was a time where she was convinced that she met an angel and was protected by angels. And my grandma has known and loved the Lord her whole life. She is a super wise, godly woman. Like I tend to believe her because I know who my grandma is. And she tells this story that um, back when um, I was just a baby, like a newborn baby, um, my um, cousin, his name was Michael, he was the oldest on that side of the family, he was only three. And my grandma took her grandson Michael shopping at Woodfield Mall in, in the suburbs of Chicago. And if you've ever been there before, you know it's a massive mall, huge building, huge parking lot, thousands and thousands of people there. And they went shopping, she had to run some errands and they were um, headed out of the doors, going back to the parking lot, which is huge, thousands and thousands of cars. And, and they were leaving. And as she was walking out, two men were walking in and they made eye contact. And my grandma had one of those moments where all the hair stands up on the back of your neck. And she She's like, oh no, I'm in trouble. 
And she watched those two men talk to each other, turn around and start following my grandma. And my grandma's like, oh no, I'm gonna get mugged right now. And she's like, I've got this three-year-old grandchild, like I've got no way to defend myself, I'm in real trouble. And um, she looked up ahead in the parking lot and there was this man and his daughter and they were holding hands. And my grandma thought kind of out of desperation, well, if I can go up and be by them, maybe they'll think we'll together, we're together and they'll leave us alone. So my grandma kind of took Michael by the hand and was like, hey, Michael, let's hurry up, let's go walk by these people. And um, the man and the daughter never acknowledged my grandma. But what happened is, is the men that were pursuing my grandma kind of gave them some space now that they were with a man, but kind of kept following and just seeing what was happening. And my grandma said that the man and the daughter never acknowledged my grandma, but in the entire parking lot, they weaved their way around and stopped right at my grandma's driver's side door of her car. And my grandma quick got in, put Michael in and looked up and they had vanished. She's like, they, they were gone and I should have been able to see them and I couldn't find them anywhere. And she says, I just know that God sent angels to protect me because I was in real trouble. Right there for a moment and then vanished. That's what happens with Melchizedek. This guy shows up, he's called a priest of the most high God. And if that's the case, why don't we hear more about him? He's just gone. So the question is, is who is this Melchizedek? And here's what I'm gonna argue with or for today, it's this that Melchizedek is the clearest representation of Jesus in the entire Old Testament. Melchizedek is the clearest representation of Jesus in the entire Old Testament. This guy is awesome and he's super important if we're gonna understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing right now for you and for me. And here's some evidences, four ways that Melchizedek represents Jesus. First of all, you need to understand what Melchizedek's name means. Melchizedek means righteousness. And Hebrews 7 tells us that, that the name means righteousness and he is king of Salem and Salem means peace. And you need to understand in the Old Testament, names were more than just names. They represented someone's character and who they were. So this guy is named king of righteousness and king of peace. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It sounds like Jesus, right? Who's called the Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Counselor, King of Kings. Not only does his name represent Jesus, but his unique role represents Jesus. Look at verse 18 of Genesis 14. It says this, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the most high God. And so it says that Melchizedek, he was both king of Salem and he was a priest. He held both the role of king and priest. And we're gonna get into the importance of that in a moment. But here's what you need to know right now. Nobody in ancient society was both king and priest. They were separate, distinct roles for separate, distinct people. The only person in all of scripture other than Melchizedek to be both king and priest is Jesus Christ. In fact, the roles were so different, you wouldn't want one person to have both roles. Here's why, the king, the king represented the law. He was kind of like the police force. He provided law and order, he made rulings, he gave leadership, he was the one that set the direction for the society, he acted as the law. The priest was kind of like the, the pastor or the biblical counselor. And, and when people were in trouble, they would go to him and he would give them advice. He, he would show them the scriptures and this is how you're called to live and this is what you need to change. And he would come alongside and support and help and be that kind ear when people had no one else to talk to. So you wouldn't want the king to be the priest because it'd be like having a counselor be a police officer, right? 
Like, if I, am I gonna get arrested if I tell you what I'm about to tell you right now? Like, it would have been an awkward thing to have the king be the priest, but it says that Melchizedek was both and that Jesus serves as both. Another thing about Melchizedek that represents Jesus is the bread and the wine. And we see that in verse 18, that the meal that Melchizedek shares with Abram, he brings bread and wine. And, and there is significance all over that when it comes to Jesus Christ, isn't there? Right, think about the last supper Jesus had with his disciples. What did they have? They had bread and wine. And Jesus said, you know what? This represents my body, which is going to be broken for you when you gather together. Eat it, remembering me, identifying yourself with me. And the cup and the wine represents my blood, which is going to be poured out. And it's more than a coincidence that Melchizedek, the very meal he has is the very things that Jesus says represents himself to his followers. We're gonna end the service with communion. And we're going to do the same thing, identify with Jesus, remember Jesus through taking of bread and juice. The bread and the wine are significant. And look at verse 19. It says this, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So the fourth thing that, that, that points to Jesus is the fact that Abraham tithed to this guy. Like, isn't that wild? That tithing is always denoted as an act of worship. And the reason we give our offering in the worship service is because it's part of worshiping God. And the tithe, it's not saying, God, you can have the last 10% of what I have, but it's saying, God, I'm giving you my first and my best because I'm acknowledging that you own all of it. And Abram, the father of the Jewish people, who is held in such high regard, he tithes to Melchizedek saying, you are greater than I am in an act of worship. Never in scripture do we see a tithe given to a king or a man. It's always reserved for God. The priest would collect the tithe and it would go towards the temple. Okay, so you got this guy who shows up, who carries the same names as Jesus, who has the same roles that Jesus has, has communion with Abram, blesses him, and then Abram tithes. Melchizedek vanishes. We never hear him again. He's like a ghost. All right, so here's the question. Who is this guy? Why don't we know more about him? Why is he so significant, but only here for, for a couple of verses? He's so significant that the writer of Hebrews dedicates two chapters to him. And so here's what the question has become. Here's what's been argued about. Was Melchizedek a real king who just was a type of Christ or who represented Christ? Or was Melchizedek what's called a Christophany and was he actually Jesus Christ? Was this one of the times in the Old Testament where Jesus shows up and meets with his people? And um, here's what I would say on that. Scripture doesn't say so we can't know for sure. So I would never say it's for sure this or for sure that. But I tell you what, as I talk with people and as I study the text, man, if this isn't Jesus Christ, it sure sounds like him, doesn't it? And if there was a gun to my head, if I had to guess, I would say that this was Jesus Christ himself. And what happens in Genesis 15 is that God gives his covenant to Abraham and he changes his name to Abraham. And what God promises Abraham is he says, listen, out of you, every nation of the world would be blessed. And I think right before God did that, God had Abram have a meal with the fulfillment of that promise because Jesus Christ himself is the one who came from the line of Abraham that blesses everyone. Isn't that a cool picture? Like this Melchizedek is a pretty impressive guy. 
Okay, so then the question becomes, why does this matter? Okay, so like you can leave here today and you can impress your friends because you know about a guy with a cool name, but, but, but what does this mean for us? Why is the writer of Hebrews so adamant that Jesus follows in this guy's line and this is so important? Well, what I wanna do with the rest of our time is I wanna talk about four things that Melchizedek teaches us about Jesus that we need to hold on to. Here's the first. Melchizedek teaches us that it's always been all about Jesus. Melchizedek teaches us that it's always been all about Jesus, that even thousands of years before Jesus did his ministry on earth, God was paving the way, giving a clear picture of who the Messiah would be, who his savior is. The entire Bible is a collection of stories telling one story. It is a collection of stories lifting high one person, and that is Jesus Christ. The whole thing is about Jesus. From Genesis 3.15, the moment that man sinned and fell from God, God promises a Messiah, a king who would crush Satan and save his people. Right? You think of... Um, all that the Bible says, the prophecies about Jesus, that, that men wrote prophecies thousands of years before Jesus was alive, that Jesus perfectly fulfilled every single one of them. You think about how God set up the nation of Israel on all that was doing was pointing to Jesus. Here's one for you. You might not know this. Um, here's a question. Um, what tribe did the kings of Israel have to come from? Do you know? If you know it, just say it out. You give it your best shot. Judah, right? The, the kings had to come from the tribe of Judah. David was from the tribe of Judah. Jesus was from the tribe uh, of Judah. So here's the question. Why did the kings have to come from the tribe of Judah? Well, you know why? Do you guys remember the story of Joseph? Remember, Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and he was Jacob's favorite. And so his other 10 brothers one day, um, the, the 11th Benjamin was at home, and Benjamin was kind of the second favorite, but Joseph was the first favorite. And the other 10 brothers were working in the field, and Joseph went out to visit them, and his brothers ambushed him, and they beat him up, threw him in a pit, were going to leave him to die, but then sold him into slavery, and then told a lie to their dad that, that Joseph was dead. So Joseph goes to Egypt and he works as a slave. Then he gets thrown in prison, but God blesses him and Joseph is faithful. God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. And eventually Joseph interprets the dream of the Pharaoh that saves Egypt from going into a famine. And because of this, the Pharaoh blesses Joseph and basically installs him as chief of finance. So Joseph now has high power. He's ruling in Egypt and the famine hits the promised land and Jacob and his sons don't have any food. So he sends the 10 brothers to go to Egypt and ask for food so that they can survive, right? And imagine this scene, the 10 brothers walk in and Joseph sees them. They don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And what Joseph does is he doesn't reveal who he is right away, but he wants to see if his brothers have changed. So he says, hey, is this all your brothers? And I'm like, no, we have an 11th. His name is Benjamin. And he says, I want you to bring him back too. So they bring him back. Joseph gives them a ton of food, but he has one of his servants plant a, a, a um, goblet of the king in, in Benjamin's um, food that, that, that he's given. And as they're leaving, Joseph accuses Benjamin of stealing. And he goes, you've just stolen from the king. And Benjamin goes, no, I haven't. And they produce this goblet and it looks like Benjamin's guilty. And Joseph says, Benjamin, because you've stolen from Pharaoh, the other brothers, you can go, but Benjamin, you're going to stay and you're going to be killed for your crime. And it was Judah who came forward and said, no, 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 don't kill Benjamin, kill me instead. I'll die for my brother's sin. Don't kill Benjamin, that would destroy my father. So what God said was that the kings would come from the line of Judah 
because he's giving us a picture that just like Judah, there would be a king one day who would willingly lay down his life for his brothers. Doesn't that give you the chills? Isn't that so amazing? Like it's always been all about Jesus. And here's what I wanna plead with you guys today. I think we miss so much greatness and depth because we're not willing to engage seriously with God's word. We miss out on so much because we settle for just knowing the basics and not engaging with God's word in a serious way. This is what the writer of Hebrews is frustrated about. He's like, you should know this already. You should have this, but you've settled for milk. One of the things I love most in life are sports. And um, my favorite team in the entire world is, is a Chicago White, the Chicago White Sox. I'm a massive Chicago White Sox fan. I watch most of their games. I read articles on them almost every day. I listen to podcasts. I even follow their minor league baseball teams. Like I follow the players who aren't even good enough to play in the majors and I can have an in-depth conversation with you about a 21-year-old Cuban kid who's never played major league baseball. It's weird, right? Pray for me, it's not normal. But, but here's this thing, when you love something, um, there's a term for it, we kind of nerd out on it, right? Like we go all in and we dive in deep and we give a lot of time and effort to the things we love. And maybe it's not sports for you, but maybe it's woodworking or maybe it's cars, or maybe it's a TV show, or, or, or maybe it's another hobby. And, and what I'm arguing with is, is the things that you love, we have no problem nerding out on and giving the time and the energy. But for some reason, when it comes to God's word, we buy into this excuse, it's gonna take way too much time and it's gonna be way too hard for me to really dive in deep and understand it. I just can't do it myself. And it's like, if I can give you the list of the top 50 Chicago White Sox prospects who don't even play for the White Sox, right? I've got the time and energy to engage with God's word. If you can tell me the make and model of a car driving half a mile down the road that you can't even see, but you can hear the engine, like you're not afraid of doing some hard work and doing some study, right? If you're like, man, look at this playset that I whittled out of one piece of wood, right? You're capable of putting in the dedication into knowing God's word. If you're like, man, I've memorized every line of every episode of The Office, all 12 seasons, right? You got some other issues, but you, you can nerd out on things. And, and, and here's what I'm trying to get at. I think the reason we don't nerd out on God's word is we don't think the reward will be worth it. And I'm telling you it is. Every second we choose to engage with God's word in a serious way, all that's going to happen is, is our love for Jesus is going to grow and our awe for how amazing and supernatural the Bible is, um, our awe levels are gonna go through the roof. And so maybe you're hearing like, all right, Cal, you, you, you've got me, where do I start? Um, throw up this next slide. Here's a really, really easy, practical way to start. There's these commentaries out there and they're written by a guy named Kent Hughes and they're called the Preach the Word Commentaries. And what these do is, is they're one, there's one for every book of the Bible. So if you wanna study a book, all you need to do is get this commentary and it breaks the passages down verse by verse and it goes in depth, but it's also practical and it's very readable, but it's gonna help you understand God's word on a deeper level. Now, Christmas is right around the corner. This might be something you can put on your Christmas list, but it's very, like we live in an information age where information about God's word is more accessible than it's ever been. It's always been all about Jesus. And the more we engage with God's word, the more we're going to love him. Here's the second thing we learn. It's this, it's that Jesus is both our priest and our king. Jesus is both our king and our priest. Look again at Hebrews 5, 
one. Look what it says. It says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. All right, and this next slide isn't in your notes, but if you're taking notes, you wanna write this down. What Hebrews 5, the first few verses do, it's just listing the qualifications of what it meant to be a high priest. And it says that a high priest needed to be chosen by us to represent us, that he had to be sympathetic, that he had to deal with with the wayward and, and the ignorant gently. And we know that Jesus can do that because he has experienced what it's like to be us that he is sympathetic to our plight, that he had to be pure. The high priest, before he offered the sacrifices for the nation, he had to offer offer sacrifices for himself so that when he stood before God, his sin was forgiven. Well, we know that Jesus was the pure lamb of God who never sinned so he could make the sacrifice for all people and that he had to be called by God just like Jesus was called by God. Okay, and here's what this means. This means that in Jesus Christ, You and I both today have a king who leads us and guides us and gives us instruction and is in control. And we have a priest who is sympathetic towards us and is our counselor and absolutely feels everything that we feel. And I wanna share with you a really cool example of how Jesus acts as both our king and our priest while he was alive or while he was doing his ministry on earth. Do you remember the story in the New Testament where Jesus' friend Lazarus dies? Do you guys know that story? Remember Lazarus, his friend gets sick and Jesus is teaching somewhere and Mary and Martha, his sisters send a messenger and they say, you're Lazarus, your friend, he's really sick, he's about to die. And Jesus says, don't worry, this sickness will not lead to death. And he stays and he teaches there for a few more days. And by the time he gets to where Lazarus is, Lazarus has been dead three days. Lazarus dies. And it says that Martha runs out to meet Jesus. And Martha says to Jesus, she says, Jesus, if you would have been here, she says this in tears, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You know what Jesus says to Martha? He says this. He says, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. Your brother will live again. Jesus meets Martha with truth. He acts as her king. He says, Martha, I'm in control. I know what's going on. I'm present, I'm here, I'm in control. It says, then he walks a little bit further and then Mary meets Jesus and Mary says the exact same thing as Martha did. She says, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You know what Jesus says to Mary? He says nothing. He just weeps with her. So to Martha, Jesus acts as king. To Mary, Jesus acts as priest. And it's just, I feel what you feel. I know what you're going through. And my heart breaks just like your heart is broken. Listen, for all of you that came up to the front and were kind of acknowledging, I'm struggling with fear and with anxiety. Like, listen, Jesus knows what it's like to be afraid. And when we come to Jesus, whatever we're feeling in our heart, he's also feeling that he sympathizes with us, that he walks with us because he is both our king who leads and is in control and he's our priest who sympathizes, which means, guess what? Whatever you're going through right now, you're not alone. One of the promises of being a follower of Christ is we're never alone, but that God is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit because Jesus is our king and our priest, amen? 
The third thing Melchizedek teaches us about Jesus, and this one's important, it's gonna take a little bit to uncover, but it's this, is that Jesus can save anyone, anywhere. Jesus can save anyone, anywhere. Look, uh, turn over now to Hebrews 7, starting at verse 11. Hebrews 7, uh, the writer goes back to talking about Jesus and Melchizedek. Look at verse 11. He says this, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord descended from Judah and in connection that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who became a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement, but concerning bodily descent, but the po- or concerning bodily descent, but the power of an indestructible life. Okay, so here's what's going on. The the, the Jewish readers, they were struggling because they're like, listen, Jesus can't be our priest because he's not a Levite. You see, under the law, um, only Levites and people who came from the tribe of Levi could serve as priests. But you guys just told me Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. So they're like, how can Jesus be our priest if he's from the tribe of Judah? And, And here's what the writer's saying. He's saying, listen, that's why Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek because Melchizedek wasn't Jewish. He wasn't from the line of Abram, but he was a chief priest of the most high God. And just like Melchizedek, because he has no genealogy and no background, he can serve as a priest for everyone. Jesus has no beginning and no end, and he can serve as a priest for absolutely everyone. He's saying that what Jesus accomplished is greater than what the law accomplished because the law was only for the nation of Israel. The Levite priests, they could only offer for the sins of the nation of Israel and they had to do it year after year after year because the law could show us our sin, but it had no ability to redeem us. But it says Jesus, because he's after the order, not of Aaron or Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek, his sacrifice was once and for all and now he is seated at the right hand of God. His work is done and it's for all people because he's not connected to the Jewish line. Look at verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And what the writer makes the argument is that because Abram tithed to Melchizedek, he says the greater always receives from the lesser. So he's saying the fact that Abram, the father of the Jewish faith, tithes to Melchizedek is showing that the covenant through Melchizedek represented in Jesus is greater than the covenant that was given through Abraham, that all are included, that Jesus can save anyone everywhere. Look at verse 22. It says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That means that there's not anyone in this room who is too far from God that Jesus is without beginning and without end. And it doesn't matter how far you've run from God. And I know there's people in here right now that's like, no, 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 I am. I've lived on my own too long. I've done too much. I've been complacent for way too long. God has to be out of me. Listen, no, no, no. Jesus is eternal and his righteousness and his perfection can way, way, way outrun your sin. 
And, and the fact is, if you're here and you're concerned that, that, that your sin uh, disqualifies you from God loving you, I'm not concerned about you because you understand the gravity of your sin. All you need to do is have faith and believe that God loves you in Jesus Christ. The person I'm concerned about is that this truth has become stale or boring to them. Like this is too important and too good that we can be saved because Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. It's greater than just for the Jewish people. It's for all of us. Here's the last thing that Jesus teaches us or Melchizedek teaches us about Jesus. It's this, it's that Jesus deserves our first and our best. It's that Jesus deserves our first and our best. I wanna close by looking at Hebrews 7 verse one. It says this, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met with Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth a part of everything. He is by first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. See, you need to understand to the Jewish people, Abraham was the biggest deal. He's the father of the nation. It's like George Washington for Americans. Like when it comes to presidents, you can't do better than George Washington. He's the first. Abraham is the founder of the Jewish people. And he's saying Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because Abraham gave him his first and his best. He tithed to Melchizedek. And what he's saying is, is that, listen, Jesus is deserving our first and our best. And that's why I wanted to ask the question at the beginning of the message, has Jesus grown stale in your heart? Like, listen, can you honestly say when you came in here this morning and when you worshiped him, like just 30 minutes ago, did he have your first and your best when you came to worship this morning? Are we worried about what other people might think? Are we, are we going through the motions? Are, are, are we holding back? Are we distracted? In your marriage, do you love and serve your spouse because Jesus has your first and your best and you wanna love like Jesus loves? In your workplace, does Jesus have your first and your best? Can I, can I get really personal? In your finances, does Jesus have your first and your best or have you believed the lie that what you have, it's because you've earned it? Well, when we give back to Jesus, it's because it's saying, listen, you're in control of everything, God. Everything you have is yours and you've blessed us with everything you've given us and we acknowledge that. So we're gonna give you our first fruits back. Does Jesus have your first and your best? And um, I'm gonna transition us into communion right now. And it's so fitting because what communion is, it's Jesus not just giving us his first and his best, giving us everything. Right, the bread and the wine, they represent Jesus's life being poured out on our behalf so we could be saved. And in Hebrews 5, that first portion I read, it said that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was crying out, groaning to the Lord saying, God, if there was any other way for me to not have to go through this, God, make another way. I don't wanna have to die this way but I care more about your will and honoring you than what I want. So I'm gonna go through it if you call me to do it. He was perfectly obedient, giving us his all to the very end. And what communion is, 
It's us identifying, saying that we are people of God and our identity rests not in our strength or our greatness, but it rests in the greatness of Jesus Christ and what he gave us. And so I don't want to take communion without giving us some time to settle in our hearts and wrestle with God. Where are you calling me to give you my first and my best? Maybe it's in faith. Maybe it's in trust. Maybe there's some fears that we've got to hand over to the Lord right now in a real way and say, these things don't get to control me anymore. Jesus will. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's forgiveness. But I, start, I want you to start to think about right now, listen, can you honestly say, man, Jesus has me. That's what I want from you. That's what this passage is screaming is Jesus is worth it. It's always been about him. So I'm gonna call the ushers forward right now as we begin to prepare. And I just wanna remind you again, um, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're welcome to take communion with us. You don't need to be a member. This can be your first weekend here. We don't care. Just remember, it's passed out in two cups. Take both cups. They're stacked on top of each other. One has bread, one has juice. And what we're gonna do is, is Alex gonna come back and he's gonna sing a song over us. And then he's going to lead us in the taking of the elements together. But let's do this. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes right now for a moment. And let's just take a moment to meet with the Lord. And I want you to tell him, Jesus, you're worthy of everything that I have. Dear Heavenly Father, you're so amazing. You're so good. Um, how amazing is your word that even before the covenant with Abraham was established, you give us so clearly a picture of Jesus Christ the one who would fulfill every promise you've given us, the one who was you that walked this earth that died in our place. What an awesome thing. It's always been all about your son, Jesus Christ. He deserves our first and our best. Forgive us for so quickly and easily being distracted, for putting our hope in things that don't matter and that fail us and forgetting that you are good and we exist to worship you. God, I'm asking, would you do a supernatural work in our hearts this weekend? Would you break down walls? Would you break down barriers? Would you do a new work? We love you. We need you. Thank you for your body and blood that was broken for us. Help this to be a meaningful time in our faith as we identify with you and meet with you through the taking of communion. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.